Happy Easter tonight. Um, some of you may think that's a moronic statement since Easter was Sunday. But as for uh, this church and all of us, we will be celebrating Easter every day that we gather. Uh, just to remind you of the fact that Jesus is no more alive today than he was on Easter. In fact, he's just as alive. And so as we gather here today, could you just turn to your neighbor and just say Happy Easter? Because it's just as much the life of Christ today as it was on Easter Sunday. We're incredibly grateful for that. Yes. Hey, it's great to see all of you. You look wonderful um, tonight. 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 Oh, my goodness. Um, we're going to do something completely different. Okay? Something we never have done before here. Uh, it's going to have a different feel, a different taste. First of all, I want you to pay attention to the pen underneath your seat. Go ahead and grab that pen for me. Okay? Grab that pen. Um, make sure you have one. There's a bunch in the chairs around you. Coming out into the crowd right now are going to be some individuals handing you a piece of paper. Every single person here tonight needs one of these papers. So hurriedly could these individuals begin to pass these out. Uh, we're going to have some fun tonight. Is fun okay with everybody? Everyone okay with having some fun tonight? Great, Billy. It'll be awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I recognize this. You guys, all, you guys passing those out hurriedly? It's not a nice white cardstock. Did you notice that? A little thick, so you don't necessarily have to have some, something underneath to write on. Yeah. Worth a lot of money. We paid a good penny for this. Don't kid yourself. Ten cents a copy. Quick copy, your local copy store here in St. Charles. They hook us up fatty style. Now, here's what I recognize. Check this out. I recognize that if not one of you, 150 of you at some point, I've had a conversation with, and you've confessed and I've confessed our struggle with studying the Word of God. Not just do we struggle studying it, we struggle reading it, which can we go ahead and agree before we even start tonight, there's a completely different thing, okay? I did a lot of scanning in college. Anyone else, you know? If I even bought the book, let's say that. You know I mean? I'm just going to confess my own sin, you know? I would buy some books, and the books that I did buy, I did a phenomenal job scanning, you know what I mean? I was like, oh, look, page number 29, you know what I mean? I wouldn't even see any of the words, right? Well, I, I know just from talking to you and from knowing my own nasty heart, that we struggle even reading the Word of God. But friends, we're not called to read. We are called to study. And why study? To learn. And to learn what? To learn about who the person and work of Jesus Christ is, which is written about on every page of the entire Scripture. And so recognizing that tonight, recognizing my own struggles and my own issues, recognizing yours, here's what we're going to do. Tonight, we together are going to study this passage. You're going to be able to use this piece of paper and to write arrows and boxes and circle words. And the key to studying Scripture that we're going to find tonight is asking questions. Every passage that you read, your heart should instantly be saying, well, what about this? And, and what does this mean? And why this word here? But we don't do that, do we? I mean, we're so trained literally just to scan the words and to take them at face value. And when we do that, we miss the beauty. We miss the beauty that is the mystery of the Scriptures. Listen to this, friends. Tonight, the answers although they will come, 
aren't necessarily all that's important. What's important as we study the Scriptures is the journey, is the conversations. Why? Because church, this gathering, and lot families are an extension of life. If you're a believer in this room, you should be coming here already have hunger for the Word of God. And when you come here, it's just an extension of the life that you're living daily. If you're a non-believer in here, I say thank you for coming. And we love for you to be here and know this, that as we study the Scriptures, the Scriptures are just as much for you as we get caught up in the mystery of God. And so tonight, you have a pen, you have a paper, and I'm going to pose 35 questions from just 10 verses that I've seen. And the reality is, is what we're about to do is extremely possible in your living room. In your den, if you have one. You know what I mean? I mean, in your bedroom. I don't care. Wherever it is you read and study the Word of God, your car, I don't care. It's entirely possible. Now, some of you are like, but Mark, you and Jason are all scholarly. Like you guys, you know, you guys are supposed to have all the answers. Listen, Jason and I have been called and Jeff called to teach in this body. But we're all called to learn. The answers and the resources and the journey are at every single one of our fingertips. You're like, well, Mark, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This is right here what Jason and I read in preparation to teach the Gospel of Luke. Okay, this is what is called a commentary. It's kind of thick. And yes, I do actually read this one. In preparation to teach every Wednesday night, we read about 12 of these on every passage Now, keeping in mind that this isn't the Bible, amen? The Bible is the Bible, okay? But all I'm saying is that there's resources like commentaries. And some of you have study Bibles that have little anecdotes on the bottom. Some of you guys listen to extra sermons to kind of help extrapolate from the passage. The reality is we're not doing this because we're lazy. We'd much rather just read a passage and say, oh, that's great. Um, There's a sheep and a shepherd. All right, on to the next verse. When we miss the beauty... We miss the mystery. And so you leave it up to Jason and I. And I leave it up to whoever I listen to online sometimes. To have them extrapolate the answers and extrapolate the mystery. When imagine, if you will, the difference in our conversations when we gathered here tonight. If each of us had been studying. Uh, So so I've been, uh, so Jason, I've been thinking about this one passage. And, uh, and, Man, I just, what do you think about this? Like, I see the phrasing of the words here. Or, or, or over here, I say, Jeff Box, man, I've just, been, I've just been encouraged by this one particular piece of the word. Like, what's your thoughts there? We come to Lot family on Sundays, and our hearts are already studied up. Like, we can't stop asking questions, not just of the teacher, but of everyone as we journey together towards the answers that God provides uh, through His word. And most importantly, too, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're banking on tonight. That through the Holy Spirit revealing and through the power of the Word of God, which never returns void, that together tonight we'll study. All right? So grab your pen. Uh, Andrew, put up verse 1 for me. Thank you very much. Uh, no, that's not verse 1. Actually, that's verse 7. Yeah. Verse 1 for me, please, Andrew. That would be wonderful. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the passage. And feel free, like on your paper, like circle things and like scribble things. I'm a doodler. Uh, if, if any of you guys have ever seen me prepare to teach, you know, I have a whiteboard in my office and it's like marked full of like, you know, little turkey images and arrows and, you know, connection pieces. However you best study, I provided a piece of paper so that you can do that tonight. Verse 1 in Luke chapter 15. 
Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Now, oftentimes what I do is when I'm reading the scriptures, I read the first verse. And I haven't even thought about the context of the passage before I read it. So before we even read this first verse, something that should already be going through your mind is what is the context of this passage. I've left a little room for you there at the top of your paper. You need to be asking yourself two questions when it comes to context. What is the overall context of this particular passage? And what is the specific context of this particular passage. If you miss it, then we miss who the letter is written to and why the letter was written and what the letter is directed to be towards. The overall context, like we've mentioned many times in Luke, is what? He's a what? Luke is a doctor, a physician, a smart guy, okay? And he's writing to who? Theophilus, who is a Roman official and more importantly, a what? A Gentile. And so we have a physician writing to a Gentile. And when you read the passages in that vein and in that context, and you're thinking as you read that God is writing a great book through a man to a Gentile who's struggling to understand Jesus, then like all of a sudden doesn't already have more meaning. Then all of a sudden, even this verse, before we even start, we're like, yeah, yeah, this is beautiful. But we don't just look at the specific context, or or the overall context, we also look at the specific context. The specific context of Luke chapter 15 is what? We came out of Luke 14 where we saw a man healed with dropsy on the Sabbath. And the tension created between the Pharisees and Jesus. We saw this parable of the great banquet where the whole teaching from Jesus was about, look, you think you're going to be at the banquet? But actually you're not. Everyone who you think is not going to be there is going to be there and they're going to love it. And you think that my meal is going to hold off and wait for you? No, 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 it's not. My meal is hot and ready and I'm going to bring people in, the blind, the lame, the crippled. And then we saw the cost of being a disciple. Now, the very last verse of Luke chapter 14, Jesus says what? Anyone remember? It's going to be very interactive tonight. Anyone remember? He who has ears, let him hear. Now, hold on a second. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. He who has ears, let him hear. He was speaking in a big group. And now all of a sudden, can you see beautifully, if we understand the context a little bit specifically, those who Jesus just invited, he who has ears, let him hear. They're like drawing into it. Oh, really? Like, yeah, I want to hear that. I'll put up the next slide. These are my notes on this a particular passage. I had a several questions from this passage. I'm going to share my questions. You may have other questions. I uh, encourage you to um, struggle through those and wrestle through those uh, with some of your peeps. Now, my first question was, why are the tax collectors and the sinners put together? I've used a creative blue arrow here to connect them. Why are, they, why are the, those two words, those two groups of people put together in this first verse? Um, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to also notice the quotation marks around sinners. And so instantly, when you look at this verse, you should be asking yourself, like, why are there quotation marks around sinners? That seems interesting, you know? And so as you're studying the Word of God, on your journal, or in your Bible, or in the margin, what happens is you start writing these questions. 
Why are these two groups of people here? Why is uh, sinners in quotation marks? And what starts to happen is your heart starts to go on this journey through the mystery. Again, you may not have all the answers, but there's resources that can help guide us, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit. Tonight we're going to work through some of the answers, but more importantly, we're going to keep asking questions. Now, if you're a tax collector, let's talk about these two groups of people. You're a tax collector. Uh, you're not everyone's best friend, okay? I don't know how many of you guys are good buddies with the IRS here in America, but we can a little bit relate, you know? I, I met an individual who works for the IRS one time, and I asked them, so how is it like living with people, around people, you know? Like, aren't they always angry at you? You know what I mean? Like the man's getting at you, and, the, and they shared, you know, it's interesting, we get a lot of phone calls, but tax collectors in this day were not loved people. They put a heap of burden on people. They were outcasts. Now, the word sinners here is used in the context of people who were ungodly, and most importantly, the quotation marks are placed around sinners because these are people who the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who we're going to see in the next verse, considered sinners. So it's interesting that the quotation marks were placed there because the Pharisees were saying they're sinners when in actuality they are too. So the quotation marks simply mean that there are a separation between the Pharisees and these group of people and they're being separated when actually they should be all together. They're gathering around to hear in verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I had several questions about this, uh, about this verse. Put up my notes here. Now, first of all, as I was reading through it, and this is the, I'm sharing with you guys exactly how I studied this passage. I very first noticed the word but. And I, I was drawn to it, um, not because it's like funny or something, but I, w- I was just drawn to it. Because it's a transitional word here, and we'll talk about a little bit more about it later. I underlined Pharisees because when you're studying the Scriptures, listen to this. I know some of you think that you're um, biblical know-it-alls, right? Maybe none of you, but I don't know. Even for me, when I came to this part, I need to be reminded as I study the Word of God what these words are. We've created our own Christian lingo and our own Christian language. And we expect that everyone just, I say Pharisee, and everyone in the room just automatically knows what Pharisee is. That's not true. And so I underlined Pharisee to remind myself of who the Pharisees were. We'll talk about them. I also underlined teachers of the law, because I was just curious again, why would we have these two groups of people? As you're studying, you may have done the same. I was literally drawn, and as shown by the neon green circle, like what the significance of the word mutter is. Interesting word. Don't see a lot in Scripture. Can we agree, Right? muttered like what is that word you know what I mean like it seems strange and so I circled it and then I was drawn to this quote this man welcomes sinners and eats with them and I just I was drawn to to what the claim is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering it just seems interesting now a few things here uh, as we answer some of the questions here the word but shows that there are um, some individuals who tension has been created with. We have sinners and we have um, people who are drawn to Jesus to hear more. And then this phrase starts out, but, meaning what? That what's about to be said is a tension passage. What's about to be said is there's like going to be created some separation or some distance. But the Pharisees, now who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees, the Hebrew word is uh, 
uh, farish, which literally means to separate. The Pharisees take the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and they hold it up on the throne. And they say, oh, oh worship the God of Moses. And they just put it up here. I was a little bit off tune there, wasn't I, Jeremy? I'm sorry. I'll work on my tunage. And uh, they put it up here. And it's what they worship. But, but not just do they worship it, they create other things on this throne that aren't even in the Mosaic Law, making them extremely hypocritical. And so again, as we read through this text, we have to be reminded of who this group of Pharisees are. Now, teachers of the law could be Pharisees and often were Pharisees. In fact, the leader of the Pharisees were often called teachers of the law. But what we find in the Scripture is that these two words are very synonymous with one another. We'll find them together a lot. Now, the neon green circle. Mutter. In the ESV, if you read the ESV, the word there is grumble. So apparently, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law aren't too in tune with the sinners coming to Jesus, in quotation marks, to hear Him. And so they begin to mutter to themselves, to grumble to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, if you're sitting in your living room, your den, your car, instantly you should be asking yourself, so... Like why, like, why is there tension here? Well, it's clear that the Pharisees are saying that what Jesus does is not something they would do. Are you guys with me? If the, if the Pharisees are muttering or grumbling, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, then what, what, what they're saying is, is what Jesus is doing is not something that we would do. Can we see the tension? Now, if you're reading this verse all by yourself, and you don't stop and pause. Uh, you read it like this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And if you're like me, a lot of times it's like, oh, that's great. But when you start to see the tension that this creates, can, are you feeling it a little bit more? It's like all of a sudden your heart is drawn to the mystery of this passage. And all of a sudden you can put yourself there. Now, what does this reveal about the heart of the Pharisee? The Pharisees, over and over and over in Scripture, are cynical. Jesus has come as the epitome of, of optimism, as the epitome of hope, as the epitome of, I am the great answer, I am the great shepherd, I am about loving people, and we keep seeing the pharisaical heart muttering and grumbling and cynically coming at Jesus and judgmentally making comments and gossiping and murmuring and being completely pessimistic. The heart of a Pharisee, my friends, is completely cynical. And so for me, as I read this, and when you read Scripture and you study Scripture, what you start to do is like, well, am I a Pharisee at all? Is my heart cynical at all? Am I just a constant, like, anti-encourager? Am I a constant judgment of people around me? And so as you're studying the Scripture, you get to these moments where you're like, hold on a second. Like, I've just come to this realization about what the Pharisees, like, what the status of their heart is, but is that me? Let's be real. Some of you in here 
are, have the most cynical, pessimistic, anti-encouraging hearts. If given an opportunity, it's getting a little dicey outside. It's kind of fun, isn't it? The tension's created in the room, you know. Will the electricity go out or not? I like it. Yeah. Some of you in here are completely pessimistic. Like when people just want to be around someone encouraging, they definitely don't go to you. I mean, you come to them and you're like, man, it's like 75 and breezy outside. I mean, it's a gorgeous day. And you're the guy or you're the girl who's like, yeah, it's, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, what? You know what I mean? And I'm very loud and obnoxious at times, right? But, but, but there's a point where you're just like, come on, you know? Like, can't you just wake up a little bit? And so, I just want to encourage those of you in here, cynical, pessimistic, judgmental hearts, could it be that you're like a muttering, grumbling Pharisee who is at tension with Jesus? Is that where you want to be? Because in this story, to be at tension with Jesus, can we all agree, is like 1-800-NOT-GOOD. You know what I mean? Completely a real number. Verse 3. Let's, let's keep moving. Then Jesus told them this parable. In your mind, you're thinking, oh, short verse, there must not be many questions here. Wrong! Alright? The first word, then, is a huge transitional word. If you're just reading it, like, for the first time, you're like, well, whatever, um, uh, like, uh, what does that mean? Now, and my next question was, uh, noted there by the red uh, or question mark, was what is a parable? Again, a Christian word that we say oftentimes, and we just think everyone understands it. Hey, uh, and Jesus said a parable. And I assume in my heart that 50% of the grew or 25% knows what that means. So even for me, as I was studying this passage, I was asking myself, what's the significance of then and what is a parable? Well, then... Well, then, is Jesus is about ready to drop something on somebody's head. You see what I'm saying? I mean, the but, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees started to mutter, who is this guy who eats and, and dines with sinners? And then we see, then Jesus. You know what I mean? And things are about to get sweet, right? But if you're just reading alone and you miss that, like you don't smile like we are right now, you know? If we're just reading it in our, you know, in our living room and we miss that, we don't get the joy of getting to watch Jesus come right in the face of these Pharisees and teachers of the law. And maybe you and I. So we miss it. Then Jesus told them this parable. Read a question mark. What is a parable? Well, a parable, my friends, is a story that has multiple levels of meaning. There is this like practical, real meaning and then there is this, this extra meaning, this like very um, uh, deeper meaning for Jesus, this spiritual meaning. And so when we get ready to read this parable, we have to understand that there's multiple levels of meaning just when we begin to read it. And we have to understand and remember that when Jesus is going to teach this parable, my friends, the complete parable is in rebuttal to what? is in rebuttal to what? To the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's coming at them, and this parable, and in fact the next three parables, are in response to that. Again, if you're like me a lot of times, we just scan. And so we read a parable and we disconnect it from who it's even intended to. Verse 4. I love this verse. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Any shepherds here tonight? Awesome. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Does he not leave the 99 in the open country, which sounds like a movie that just came out or something, and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, I get a little bit crazy on the colors here, but put up the next... Okay, now, I have a lot of questions on this verse. And, and again, like so far, we've asked like nine or ten questions on three or four verses. And for me, as I was reading this, like my heart was just drawn to the mystery. My first question is, is there significance with the number 100? There's no question that's stupid, all right? Some of you are like, uh, like, what kind of bozo question is that, Beavis? You know what I mean? There's no, there's no stupid question, especially if you're by yourself, right? Because all you have to contend with is yourself. So you're writing in your journal, which no one will read until, like, your best friend finds it one day, right? And you just ask yourself, what's the significance of a hundred? The next thing I underline is, I really wanted to know more about sheep. As for me in my house, I'm not a shepherd. If I assume that I know several things about sheep that in reality I don't, like, I'll miss it. And you're like, well, 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 so how do you find out more information about sheep? We'll type in, like, 30 keywords on Google to find, like, some random, you know, whatever it is. We'll type in 85 random things on YouTube to try to track down that one comedian's video that's, like, you know, no one's ever seen before. And you're telling me that we can't get on the World Wide Web. Have you heard of it? And type in S-H-E-E-P and hit enter. And at the very least, thinking Wikipedia, which is sometimes inaccurate, will at least provide some type of article. But we're lazy. We see something like sheep and we're like, yeah, I know exactly what sheep are. Well, tell me about sheep. Well, they're white. <laughs> Good start, right? But, but, but give me more. Are there scriptures that have sheep in it? Like, where in sheep? Oh, but, but Mark, how do you find that? What, you just got some, like, magical sheep Bible? No. You know what I do? I go to gospelcom.net, also on the World Wide Web, and I type in, in the search box, sheep, and it produces for me, somewhat miraculously, like the World Wide Web does, an entire list of every mention of the word sheep in Scripture. It gets even better. If I want to just see how many mentions are in Psalms, I can limit the search to Psalms, producing for me the 45 mentions of sheep in Psalms. We're lazy. It's important in this verse, but we don't do it, do we? I don't do it so many times in my personal study and my personal reading. If you were to type in sheep right now in gospelcom.net, 700 mentions of sheep in Scripture. Clearly significant. Let's keep asking questions, then we'll kind of come back. Now, I noticed, and I, often, I always do this when I, when I read the scripture, uh, when there's a word that's put in multiple times in a short amount of time, I always circle it. So we see loses and lost are there together. My next question was, okay, um, I, don't, I don't know anything about shepherding, but if I've got 100 sheep, why would I leave 99 to go after one? And why would I leave them in the open country? And so I'm literally like writing on my whiteboard, like, Okay, bad sheep McGee, you know, or bad shepherd McGee. Like, why does he leave his flock behind, right? Again, we'll get to some answers and some uh, juries later. Then I, then I noticed this, and I uh, noted it with a blue a pentagon. What's that? A rotated square, we'll call it that, okay? The, this, this word finds is going to be clearly significant through the rest of the Scripture. Now, first thing, first question, is there significance to 100 with a little bit of research, you can find out that 100, 100 was an average flock size. And so instantaneously, I'm already able to say, okay, 
So Jesus uses a hundred here, and it's an average flock size. Okay, so maybe there's not anything more significant about the hundred. But actually there is. But I, I can't give it away because like, in the next two parables it will come up more. Uh, my next question that we talked about the sheep. Here's what I found out about sheep if you didn't know this. Scripturally, they're always shown as defenseless. They're always shown as just in complete need of guidance and care all the time. I mean, they will wander off. In fact, uh, Isaiah, um, check this out, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says this about us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. So like we're like the bat, you know, like we're going to go astray at any given chance, at any given time. A sheep, my friends, are dumb, okay? Like you won't find a proverb that says sheep are therefore dumbeth, right? But, but they are. And they're shown as constantly submissive, gentle, and ignorant. And we, like sheep, have gone astray and turned our own way. Now, the next question, the 99 leaving in the open country, we're going to be able to answer that question as we continue to go on. So we'll hold off on that question, verse 5 and 6. Put this up. And when he finds it, the shepherd finding the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. If you're not lazy, if I'm not lazy, and you're taking time to really look at the implications of verse 5 and 6, you might put up something like this. Alright? You would notice a few different things. That all of a sudden we see another mention of the word lost, two more mention of the word being found. We see two mentions of joy which is largely significant. And we see in the green box something very interesting. That the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders. And so now we've read pretty much this entire first parable. And so for me, I sit back and I say, okay, let's make some general observations about the parable. Let's not talk about its, its other meaning yet. And so on my whiteboard, I just write down what I see in this parable. I see a sheep... That's completely lost. I see a shepherd that pursues the lost sheep. Do you guys see this? I see a sheep who does absolutely nothing to be found except sit there and be lost. And then I see a shepherd pursuing the sheep who has done nothing then putting the sheep on the shepherd's shoulders and carrying joyfully the sheep back home. And not just that, but the shepherd is so excited about having found the lost sheep that they call their neighbors and like, hey, hey, uh, let, let's celebrate this together. Friends, this isn't rocket science, is it? It's like you and I can be sitting wherever we're at with a couple people or by ourselves and come to those exact same conclusions. I'm, I'm confessing to you right now that just because Jason and I stand up here and teach doesn't mean we have all the right answers. It means God's called us to teach and we spent time studying just like you can. Does that make sense? He hasn't called all of us to teach, but he's called all of us to learn. And so the next question, which better be obvious, is what is the deeper meaning? 
If this is the parable, the surface meaning, then what's the deeper meaning? What's the more meaning? Well, isn't it clear? The great shepherd, Jesus, will pursue the lost. And the lost who can do nothing except sit in their white sheepy wool and be lost. When he pursues them and when he finds them, and he will, listen to this, he will find the lost sheep that he's pursuing. Are you guys with me? Jesus will never be like, okay, so I'm gonna, I, like I'm, I'm going after this, this person. And I'm gonna search for him. And he never comes up empty. Are you guys with me? If he's going after someone, they're coming home. And they're not just coming home, they're coming home on his shoulders. Are you guys with me? That's largely significant. And so if you, sitting in your den, are reading this passage, all of a sudden, your heart starts to beat way faster than it ever has by just skimming this page. All of a sudden, you start to see yourself as a lost sheep. And all of a sudden, listen to this, you start to see that Jesus will pursue, that He will save, and that He experiences joy over it but not over you. Over His plan of redemption. Over getting to watch the redemptive power of His blood on a cross affect a life. And He celebrates. And He's joyful. Isn't that beautiful? He's rebutting the teachers of the law and Pharisees and telling them exactly His heart. He's unveiling his heart. I will pursue the lost, I will save the lost, and I will celebrate over that. And here's the thing. I think for many of us, we picture Jesus. Like when he saves us, he's going to be like, yeah, what up now? You know what I mean? I told you guys what's up. You and your skanky, you know, sinny self. You should be grateful for me that I did all this. It's some cynical... No, isn't it beautiful that He doesn't hang the cross over our head as some like beating tool, but instead celebrates joyfully His great plan of redemption. Friends, the love of Jesus is deep. If we're just reading this passage and we don't get to this point, wouldn't you all agree with me that we've missed it? Wouldn't you all agree that if we're just scanning this passage... We haven't understood the context. We don't understand who Luke's writing to. We don't understand what he's writing about. We don't understand the significance of sheep, that they're all going to go astray. We don't understand what it means to be lost. We don't understand what it means. If we don't understand that, we miss the beauty. And all the questions that we've asked so far are simple questions. Simple questions. Now, the next question we have to ask is, so what does this mean for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? (laughs) Right? Because that's who he's talking to, essentially. We get the benefit of seeing it for our, our lives and our perspective. What does it say to the teachers of the law? Anybody? Moment of interaction here. What does it say to them? Bar raise a hand. Whatever. Shout it out. What does this parable say to them? Everyone's scared. Don't be scared. It's okay. I know it's stormy. Can we agree that this is saying... You cynical, conniving 
judgmentally hearted beasts. You need to start celebrating the lives that are coming to me. And the reality is you're not even seeing them as lives. You're calling them sinners when you yourselves are pagan sinners. Are you, are you guys with me? I mean, he is going right at their heart. You need to celebrate. And so for us even there, someone comes to Christ in the Christian church. Everybody gets excited for 30 seconds. I mean, it's pandemonium in the church for 30 seconds. I mean, we're giving high fives. Yeah, buddy, someone came. Dude, are you playing me? Come on, bro. Come on, bro. Right? Like, we, we go crazy for 30 seconds. Everyone's doing jumping jacks. People are running around crazy. And then it wears off. Because we aren't marveling like Jesus is in his own plan. We're not sitting back and saying, oh, Jesus, your plan of redemption is being fulfilled. Thank you, God. And we fast and we pray and we celebrate for days upon days. We're callous. We're lazy. And so for you and I, after we read even this first part of the parable, we're saying, you know what? Our condemning, judgmental, pessimistic, pharisaical hearts need what? Repentance. Verse 7 says this. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Again, a lot of questions here. Stay with me. Just a few verses to go. Uh, show, me, show my notes here. Um, same way was interesting. That's why I noted it with a, a teal line. Uh, the first time we've seen teal color so far. In the same way, it was significant to me. Now, this whole phrase, rejoicing in heaven. Like I was, I don't know about you, but that's interesting. Back in my youth ministry days, I used to communicate uh, rejoicing in heaven with the image of fireworks. Probably completely bunk theological, but, but that's, like, that's, all I could, that's all I could come up with, you know? Like, so like when someone would come to Christ, they'd be like, all right, kids, guess what? There's fireworks going off in heaven, you know? Jesus shooting off bottle rockets. It's getting crazy, you know? And so for me, when I came to that question, I was like, okay, so what does it really mean to rejoice in heaven? Uh, next. I noticed this word. It's a reword, repent. One of the most classic Christian words that we don't explain enough. One of the most classic Christian words that we say like everyone understands it, but we never take a moment to explain it. And so in my heart, I was like, you know what? I, I better be reaffirmed of what the word repentance is. So, first question. In the same way, brings significance to the fact that Jesus is about to do what? He's about to give us a part of the meaning. We're sitting in our living room, deducing through the Spirit of God the meaning. We come to verse 7. Jesus is going to put it on a silver platter for us. He's going to be like, here you go. Here's the, here's the meaning. And so if we see the word same way, that means whatever's to come, Jesus is going to give us some tasty treats of what's to come. Now, there will be more rejoicing in heaven. Hold that question, and we're going to get to a later verse that better explains. Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Repentance is when I, as a sheep, have gone astray like my nature is, and I'm pointed towards the world, and I want more of the world, I hunger for the world, I thirst for the world, give me more world, give me lust, give me pleasure. Repentance is when I finally get to the point where I see that I can no longer fulfill anything through the cravings of the sinful world, and I stop in my tracks. 
and I turn around and I face completely towards the cross. Now, here's what's interesting. Is Jesus is saying this after just showing us a sheep who was lost and did nothing. If you miss that, can we agree you miss repentance? Jesus goes and gets the sheep, puts the sheep on his shoulders, carries the sheep back home, and Jesus then says, that is what? Repentance. The work of Christ to grab our hearts, turn us from the world, and turn us toward himself is all by his power. And so if you're sitting in here and you're struggling, you're like, eh, yeah, but, but no, I have to do something. Friends, rest in the good shepherd who puts you on his shoulders. Rest in the good shepherd who puts you on his shoulders and carries you home and puts you where? Right back with the flock. Right back in community to rejoice together. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? I'll put up my questions here. Some of you are thinking, uh, so is Jesus a woman now? Like, what's that, what happened here, you know? Um, let me answer that question very plainly. No, okay? Jesus is not a woman here. I think probably contextually he's trying to connect with a different a group of people that's there today. But he uses a woman instead of a man. Now, I was interested in the word or. Again, and, and we're, we're reading this all from the NIV. Different translations have a little bit different. I was also interested in why I busted out the teal again. Is there a cultural connection between a woman and having ten silver coins? Now, the question may not turn up anything. But when I was writing it down, I was just like, I'm interested. Why would a woman have ten silver coins? Like, is there something significant here? Um, I noticed the word lose again, so I circled that. I noticed the fact that she does two things in the house. She lights a lamp and sweeps the house, so I wanted to understand the meaning there. This word was brilliant to me. The C word, you see it? Carefully. That word was brilliant to me. Especially after having read this entire rest of the passage. Like, I was like, carefully? That's money. And so I put a red question mark. (laughs) Then we see the word finds again. Now, first of all, the word or shows us what? Jesus is going to what? Tell us a what? Another parable. He says one parable. He gives the meaning meaning to us on a silver platter. And then he says or. So he's changing gears. He's going to teach us another parable. All right? A woman who has ten silver coins. With a little bit of research you would find out that this woman that he's talking about is probably wearing a headdress to symbolize her marriage. And like we wear wedding rings, she was wearing a headdress that had ten coins in it, ten denarii, ten drachma, each of them worth a day's wage and was a part of her dowry. So if she loses one of these coins that represents her marriage that is of great value because it's a day's worth of wage, wouldn't you agree that it would be worth searching for? Wouldn't you agree that a sheep 
would be worth searching for. Now, interestingly enough, she does two things here. She lights a lamp and sweeps the house. So in this parable, if we were making some general observations about this parable, we notice a woman who's lost a very important coin to her, and it's probably in the middle of the night. Uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, they have no electricity, right? Again, you can figure that out on your own in your living room. You know what I mean? 2,000 years ago, hold on a second. Like, when did Alexander Graham Bell come around? Hold on. <laughs> Telephone, right? Telephone. Who did electricity? <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, right. Okay, so she does two things. She lights a lamp because there's few windows and maybe even just a small door. It's at night. She lights a lamp. It's a little oil lamp. And not just that. But she sweeps the house. Seems a little bit strange, right? But when you think about it for a second, you would imagine a woman taking a broom and sweeping over a stony or dirt floor in the hopes that all of a sudden she'll go, ching, and the broom, by touching the coin on the rocks, will make a noise, and she'll find the coin. If we were making general observations as well, we would say that she searches carefully. Can we, say, can we agree with this? She wants to find that coin, right? I mean, carefully, she's going after finding this coin. Verse 9 says this, And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. I'll put up my notes here. Again, just notice the word rejoice, found and finds, and lost. The meaning is exactly the same as the first parable. So we step back and we're studying and we're looking into this. Listen to this. By now in your living room, you've spent an hour and, and you're loving it. And you don't even notice the time because your heart has been wrapped up in the mystery of studying God's Word. And you've been looking and researching and you can't wait to find the answer, Right? And when you don't come up with it on Google, you can't wait to call your friend. So, hey, I was thinking about this one verse. What do you think? And that friend doesn't know either. But all of a sudden, you've begun a conversation. As you sit back and you begin to look at the beauty of this, you find a woman who carefully looks, at, looks, looks, looks for a coin. She finds it and she celebrates and rejoices just like the shepherd who found his sheep. Ending in verse 10, which says this. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Put up my notes here. We see the same way again. I was drawn to rejoicing. The big thing from verse 10 is in the presence of angels. In verse 7, I told you that we would pause for a moment to examine the celebrating or rejoicing that happens in heaven. This gives us a great big indicator. We notice the word repent again. So the word same way draws focus to the fact that Jesus is going to explain this parable to us. Then he says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. I'm not like a mathematician, which wouldn't even be pertinent here. But if angels are in the presence of the rejoicing, that tells you what? That they're not doing the rejoicing necessarily, but the rejoicing is focusing on one who is talked about in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with, with His love and rejoice over you with singing. 
You would notice scriptures like Isaiah 62 verse 5 says, A bridegroom, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you as he rejoices over his plan. So rejoicing in heaven, in the presence of angels, imagine God singing. Right? How many of you guys are watching American Idol? Okay, all four of you are culturally relevant. Good. Um, David Archuleta, this guy who's in American Idol, probably will win. Him and David Cook, close match. Has a beautiful voice. Jeremy and Brandon, Elizabeth, Autumn, all the people that sing. Beautiful voices, love them. God's voice, right? I mean, can you just imagine that? Probably a baritone, you know what I mean? (laughs) Rejoicing, singing over his plan. Now, we have just asked... 35 or so questions. We've just made 21, 22 observations. And none of it has been rocket science. Not a single piece of it. But each of us get to sit back from Luke chapter 15 verses 1 through 10 and say we serve a God who pursues the lost. We see a God who will not come back void. We see a God who puts the lost on his shoulders to do the work for them. We see a God then who rejoices over his plan as he sees those who are lost get saved. Instead of just saying, oh, that was a nice story about a sheep and a shepherd and a random woman, McGee, who loses a coin off her dress. All of a sudden, you and I sit back and we get to awe of a God who saves and celebrates. But we're lazy, right? I know that this exercise tonight, that if the Spirit of God doesn't do something in you, we're not going to walk out changed. Be like, yeah, that was great. That was a lot of fun. But we're going to walk out unchanged. I'm praying that God gives us a greater awe and marvel of himself, recognizing that discipline will come after love and not before. My friends, the call tonight is that each of us can be studiers of the Word of God. I asked three individuals to share with me. And uh, Craig, would you just mind just turning down the lights for me a little bit here, man? I would appreciate that. I asked three individuals to share with me what it feels like to be a lost sheep. Knowing that this story will very readily connect with each of us. Here's what they had to say. First individual said this. Looking back on my life before Jesus, everything was dark. I was lost, empty, and seeking for anything that would fill me and satisfy me. I was scared, alone, and confused. Anybody? You ever been there? You ever experienced that? You ever felt that? Listen to the words of this next individual. I felt like I was all alone. I was seeking the approval of people. And I found that no matter how many friends I had or how, or how fun I was in public, I still felt empty and alone. I smothered myself in partying, alcohol and drugs, hoping that they would bring me comfort. God and the church was a get-out-of-jail-free card or a magic genie. 
When I needed God's help, I would try to use Him. But if not, just let me do my own thing. Anybody? You're like, that person just wrote about me. Lastly, this person said, I was deaf. I was crippled. Mute. And barren. I was cut off. And afraid. The thing about all three of these lost sheep is that Jesus went after them. Jesus put these three individuals on his shoulders. Jesus stirred a heart of repentance in their hearts. And because of what Jesus did, all three of these individuals are found. And like in the stories that we saw a communal rejoicing. A communal celebration. Hey, neighbors and friends, come on in. Like, you need to rejoice with me. You need to see this. We tonight are going to have an opportunity to celebrate the plan of Jesus. Not just in these three lives, but in the lives all around us. His redemptive plan that will not return void. Stand with me. This first individual said this. After having found Jesus... Now I finally feel alive. Come on. Anybody? Now I finally feel alive. This next individual, almost verbatim, as if the Spirit was speaking, says this, I felt alive, loved intensely and secure, with great hope and joy. Anybody? There's some of you who needed that tonight. Lastly, this person said, Now I always have God's awesome comfort and strength. No matter how good or bad my life is, I no longer seek the approval of men or try to be like the world. I now strive to be like my Heavenly Father. And as a whole life is not as hopeless, knowing that even though I will mess up God's plan and purpose, His will still prevail. We're all like sheep that have gone astray. But tonight, my friends, despite a lot of studying, a lot of looking at the Word, tonight we get to sit back and we get to rejoice. A great plan of God that would send His Son to put His redeemed on His shoulders and to carry them home. God, thank You for Your saving work. Let's celebrate tonight, friends.